Hey, welcome to the Recruiting Trail. I'm your host, Andrew Nimick of the Oregonian and Oregon Live, bringing you the latest in recruiting for the Oregon Ducks, Oregon State Beavers, and Oregon High School Athletics. Following the early signing period, I took two weeks off. I came back, tried to get my feet under me in terms of what in the world is going on in recruiting because things can change in a hurry, especially when there's a coaching staff change. So I've got my feet under me and ready to go. Ready to update you on the latest, again, for the Oregon Ducks and Oregon State Beavers. The Ducks and Beavers are in very different spots, and and in some ways, they've almost uh, reversed roles in terms of process, not necessarily in terms of success rate on the recruiting trail, but in terms of process. You've got the Oregon State Beavers, who are pretty much done with their recruiting class after the early signing period. The vast majority of their talent is signed, sealed, and delivered. That's been Oregon's move in the last few years. And on the flip side, the Oregon Ducks have a class that's ranked 64th in the country and are adding transfer portal talent. They're they're using the transfer portal to bolster the roster. That's been Oregon State's move the last few years. Finished between 50th and 70th in the nation in terms of traditional recruiting class and then hit the transfer portal. So very different looks, a reversal of roles really in the way they're approaching this recruiting cycle. It's been interesting. Oregon's hand has been forced for them into this path because of the departure of Mario Cristobal. Whereas I think Oregon State has a pretty good roster, a lot of returning talent, and they don't necessarily need to patch a ton of holes so much as just add to the future, add bodies, add guys they can build on over the next few years because a lot of their talent's coming back. So a really interesting kind of flip in terms of roles. Generally speaking, we'll get uh, to the Oregon Ducks first. We'll talk a little Beavers here later. The The Oregon Ducks finished 64th as of right now in terms of recruiting class rankings. Remember, this was a class that was in the top 10. And when Mario Cristobal left, I talked about, I, I talked about it on Twitter. I talked about it on the podcast. There are kind of three distinct waves or three distinct categories of decommitments and, and Oregon experienced the gambit. We, Oregon's experience ran the gambit in terms of those three. The first wave of decommitments for a program, and, and I think Oregon's at 15 or 16 decommitments now. That first wave is guys who are tied primarily to your head coach. So when rumblings begin that a head coach is going to leave and then it's a, initially announced that he's leaving, these are guys you know right away. Head coach left. This guy's not staying around. And sometimes there are players who are on the fence already anyway. And in this case, that first wave was obviously Kelvin Banks. You know, Kelvin Banks with a bullet. Kelvin Banks was a guy who was so tied to Mario and so tied to Coach Mirabal and, and what they were bringing to the Oregon program that as soon as Mario left, that ship had sailed. There was no chance they were hanging on to Kelvin Banks. The second wave came when key assistants or the scheme. You know, they're, they're guys who are tied to those assistants, tied to the scheme. And you can say as much as you want to young athletes, when the head coach leaves, he takes some assistance with him. And when a new coach comes in, a lot of the remaining assistants are then fired because the new coach brings in his own assistance. You can explain to people the logic of that all day long, all day long. But very, very, very often in my experience, prospects don't fully understand that. They'll say, you know, for example, I know Mario's leaving, but I'm really tied to coach Ken Wilson. He's the linebacker coach at Oregon. I really like him. You know, he's staying. Well, 
you know, over time as Mario leaves and takes staff members and then other places are hiring, those assistants see the writing on the wall that they're not going to be retained and they take other jobs. Sure enough, Coach Wilson is now at Nevada. That happens quite a bit. We saw we saw a number of those players as well. I, I think you know, one and two are almost tied together in a lot of ways in terms of a chain reaction, but it is not until those assistants leave that you see that next domino fall. Wave three is the new coaching staff coming in and evaluating the guys who did stick around and choosing not to keep them. And I talked about this for a long time over the course of the last, you know, frankly, nine months, I think six months, certainly that Oregon had a bunch of guys that committed early that weren't very good, that didn't develop that when you looked at their senior film, you're kind of scratching your head saying, yeah, I don't, I don't really understand why these guys are takes. And in some cases, they did that math on their own. Andre Dollar flipped to Washington State. And, you know, you don't necessarily have to take my word for it and say, you know, what do you know about watching senior film? Check out their recruiting rankings. Check out the offers that they had. Check out the landing spots they ended up at. Tanner Bailey was a four-star quarterback out of Alabama who, as a sophomore, had a lot of interest. Is is he going to be the next big-time SEC quarterback? And as things developed and as things went on, it became pretty clear that that wasn't going to be the case. I think he ended up at Indiana. You know, did, when when there's a coaching turnover, do you expect Tanner Bailey, a, a guy to leave Oregon and then end up at Indiana and get offers from, you know, places like Purdue, uh, New Mexico State, that kind of thing? It, you know, or do you expect Oregon to compete with Michigan? Ohio State, Oklahoma for quarterbacks. And I, and I think we saw that wave very distinctly with this group, that third wave. And in some cases, again, they, those kids did the self evaluation and said, this next staff's not going to offer me. And I think we saw that. I think we saw a big group of Oregon's bottom third of this class that just didn't really develop very well. And, and I did think this was a big swing and a miss recruiting class for the most part for Mario Cristobal. It was very, very top heavy. You know, guys like Kelvin Banks and T Mac and Jalil Tucker and Jalil Florence, phenomenal football players who are in that top 60 nationally, top 70 prospects nationally. And then a big group of 10, 11 players who really weren't what Oregon has gotten traditionally. You look at last year's class, and I think Oregon ended up with four or five three-star prospects. This year, they were at 10, 11, 12 three-star prospects. So again, very top-heavy. Last year's class, tons of blue-chip talent. Yes, they got the big-time star power, but they didn't get the number one, two, or three player in the country. They relied more on getting literally like 16 players who were between 29th nationally and 280th nationally. And this class was a class that had four or five guys in that top 60, T-Mac and Kelvin Banks, potentially had Mario Stade getting a Cyrus Moss. That would have been three guys in that top 30, which is huge. And then a handful of guys between 31 and 200, and then a whole bunch of guys that were lower rated. So this was a very weird recruiting class. Steven Johnson, uh, his dad was on, was on Twitter spaces, I'm told, and told people, you know, uh, basically the new staff didn't reach out and, and offer Steven. So he falls into that third wave. Uh, I, I mentioned Andre Dollar. I think Tanner Bailey did some of the math there and realized he probably wouldn't be offered. 
And, and so we definitely saw that that third wave come together. And I, I still think it might be coming together. It will be interesting to see what Oregon does with Trajan Williams. He did not sign during the early signing period. I know he's super tied to coach Don Johnson Jr., who was his high school coach at Jefferson for a time. Will Oregon extend that offer? He, you know, he was an all American bowl selection, certainly. And I think that's worth noting. It's also worth noting that at one point he was considered a top 10 safety in the country, and now he's a top 30 safety in the country. That makes a huge difference in terms of level of program. It's not a top 30 quarterback we're talking here. We're talking a safety. Those top 30 safeties, when you get in that 20 to 30 range, it can vary pretty wildly where they end up, depending on where coaches believe in their abilities. Sometimes the number 22 safety in the country goes to New Mexico. Sometimes the number 28 safety in the country goes to Michigan. I mean, that's a slight exaggeration, but you, you, you know what I mean? In terms of 20 to 30, there's a pretty wild fluctuation at safety in terms of what teams want in terms of fit, in terms of need, how they project that player. I think Oregon's going to go all in on Trajan, uh, because of that tie to Don Johnson Jr., but based on his performance over the last year, it would not shock me if they, if they decided to look a different route. Uh, Oregon has another unsigned player. Trajan Williams is committed, just didn't sign during the early signing period. The only other one left in this class who is unsigned but still committed is probably committed in name only. That's Grayson Halton, the four-star defensive lineman. Kind of a hidden gem of this class in the sense that when when people think about the headliners of Oregon's class, Grayson Halton doesn't come to mind immediately. And yet, he's a very valuable piece. Oregon has not recruited the D-line position well at all the past few years. That really mostly continued again this year. You know, n- no knock on on a guy like Surmel's, who's who's talented, but is like in that 700 to 900 range in terms of national prospect. And you look at every other position that Oregon recruits and they almost always get top 300, top 350 talent. D-line's been totally different uh, under Coach Salavea. Oregon pretty consistently gets really average three-star talent at D-line. Uh, Grayson Halton is is the exception of the rule in that regard. He's a top 300 prospect. He's one of the best defensive linemen in the West region. I think you could make an argument. He was the number two defensive lineman in the West region behind Cyrus Moss, a very talented young man. Oregon would like to hang on to him, but that's going to be tough. He picked up an offer from Oklahoma recently, picked up an offer from Al- uh, Miami, excuse me, I said Alabama. He picked up an offer from Miami recently. He's visiting Miami. Uh, that is going to be an interesting dynamic to follow because again, he's going to have those ties to, to Mario. We've already seen that pay dividends for the hurricanes. They landed Cyrus Moss during the all American bowl. That tells me almost certainly my read on that situation was right. That USC was making a push, but at the end of the day, Cyrus Moss probably would have still ended up being a duck. If Mario stayed that hurts, that stings certainly, but uh, you, you turn the page during this time. Oregon has also gone after a handful of um, other prospects, other guys that they are potentially looking at, other guys they potentially could offer scholarships to. And, and I don't necessarily see Oregon moving the needle big time. They're 64th right now. Based on what I'm seeing, I don't necessarily think um, they're going to end up climbing back into the top 25. I don't see a major, major mover. Our artist Boardingham 
is interested in Oregon. He's a wide receiver tied in. He's very, very fast for his size, six foot four, 220 pounds. He's really talented. He's taking a visit to Oregon, but the big caveat here is he's also visiting South Florida and Florida. He is an athlete from the South, from that area, and he has flat out said, you know, Florida probably is in the lead for him. So with Florida getting an official visit, with him kind of admitting Florida schools are ahead of the other schools right now, that might be a tough pull. Amarion Winston, the Central Catholic uh, edge rusher, is another player Oregon could, could potentially add back into the fold, but he's visiting Florida this weekend. So that becomes tough. Florida is one of those schools that had a coaching change and, and as we've seen, has just blanket offered a tremendous number of athletes. That that has been their MO. That's been their move. So Florida is going to be a major player in recruiting right now. And so anytime Oregon is looking at some players, not only do they obviously have ties to the South, but just across the country, when they're looking at players who are unsigned because they have so much space, because they signed so few guys in the transition from Cristobal to Lanning, one of the main competitors you're going to hear in the next month is Florida because again, they've just blanket offered guys. I've already told you Boardingham's visiting Florida and Marion Winston's visiting Florida. That's going to continue to be a theme again until the late signing period runs its course. In the meantime, Oregon has still made an impact. They've just done it via the transfer portal and, and they've added some really talented pieces, but they've also added some pieces that, uh, I think maybe Oregon fans find a little bit polarizing, which is kind of an interesting way to describe it. But I, I think that's the case. You look at a guy like Auburn quarterback Bo Nix, a three year starter, you know, some Oregon fans are saying, well, we've got Ty Thompson, the five star quarterback waiting in the wings and, I'm all for recruiting rankings. I I obviously talk about them a ton. I think they have a lot of value. Again, you look historically over the last 10 years, five-star prospects far more likely to be drafted than four-star prospects who are far more likely to be drafted than three-star prospects. You look at all conference rankings, five-star prospects are something like 50-something times more likely to be all league players than three-star players in the Pac-12. So yes, it matters. Uh, I'm all for that. But at some point you have to say, if, if Anthony Brown was playing as much as he was late in the year with as much as he struggled off and on, as inconsistent as he was both off and on, that maybe there's some question about development with Jay Butterfield and Ty Thompson, that, that maybe it wouldn't hurt to bring in a veteran presence to make sure that you have a quarterback waiting in the wings who can be a starter from day one if those guys don't develop. So I think Bo Nix is a good addition last year for an Auburn team that wasn't very good. I mean, it's, it's important to note Auburn had a losing record last year. They were not a very good program. They weren't the Auburn they've been. Um, Bo Nix threw for 2,300 yards, 11 touchdowns, and three interceptions. Those numbers aren't bad. You know, that, that's solid. They didn't throw the ball a ton, obviously, with 11 touchdowns on the entire year, 2,000 yards passing, and he played the whole season. Um, they didn't throw for a lot of yards. But I think he managed games well. Where I think we look at this and say, okay, how good is he really? He only had three games last year where he threw for double, you know, two touchdowns or more with no interceptions. And that was Akron, Alabama State, and Mississippi State. Akron and Alabama State opened the year. So great start to the season. You know, four touchdowns, no picks to start the year. 
Then the middle of the year was a little bit of a struggle. And then they ended against Mississippi State. He threw, I think, for two touchdowns and no picks. It might have been three. Uh, five games versus ranked teams. Again, this is an Auburn team that had a losing record. They were not good. So, of course, his numbers against ranked teams aren't very good. Auburn wasn't very good. Three touchdowns, three picks. Not great, uh, but not terrible. I like the Bo Nix addition. I think it makes a lot of sense. Former five-star recruit, talented player. Um, you know, at the very least, I think quarterback play next year for Oregon is going to be as good and probably better than it was um, this year under AB. I, I just think that Anthony Brown missed so many opportunities to make plays and, and people can throw out the stats about passes beyond 10 yards, beyond 20 yards, beyond 30 yards. I don't care. Uh, watch football and tell me that that's a consistent quarterback you trust. He wasn't. And I wish him the best at the next, at the next level or whatever he chooses to do. Probably not the NFL, but maybe the USFL for him or maybe not football for him. But in terms of his talent, I think there are people who support Anthony Brown because he was a duck and say he was, uh, you know, he was good. You guys, he was good. He wasn't good. He was wildly inconsistent. He missed a lot of open receivers. He missed wide open reads a number of times, often. But at the same time, you know, he played solidly. I think Bo Nix will be an upgrade almost certainly. So that's a nice addition. They stole, and this is great for Oregon, Sam Taki uh, Tamani out of Washington, a starting defensive lineman, in fact, a two-year starter along the D-line for them, enters the transfer portal and goes to Oregon. That's going to add fuel to the fire of the rivalry. Washington's defense wasn't great, and Sam Tamani wasn't a great football player. You know, playing last year, didn't have a sack, and I know he's more of a of a nose tackle, defensive tackle, who's not expected to get sacks, but he's not going to help with the pass rush. He is a pure run stuffer. Losing Jason Jones this year in the transfer portal, and he ended up at Auburn, um, certainly left a void in the middle of that defensive line. Sam Tamani gives you, again, kind of like Bo Nix, a baseline that if the other guys around you don't develop, at the very, very least, you've got this veteran guy who's a B-. minus. Who, you know, but in Bo Nix's case, he could play to an A level. I don't know if Sam Tamani's ever going to play to an A level as a defensive lineman, but I do think he gives you a baseline, another rotational body at 330 pounds that really helps you, particularly on first and second down. And then I think the biggest addition in some ways, and anytime you get a quarterback who you expect to start, that's a huge addition, but Christian Gonzalez out of Colorado committing to Oregon here within the last few days is absolutely, absolutely massive for the Oregon Ducks. To recap this offseason, the Ducks lose uh, Mikhail Wright to the NFL draft. Verone McKinley, the first team All-American, enters his name into the NFL draft. DJ James hit the transfer portal before the season even was fully over uh, once Mario Cristobal left. That's three starting DBs. And, and you can argue whether DJ, you know, DJ James is more nickel or, you know, if he could play outside corner, exactly where he played. But, but a starter, depending on the package that was on the field, three starters, one all American and, and your best corner, uh, both, both entering for the NFL draft. You needed help in the defensive backfield. I, I think Dante Manning's got a, got potential, former five-star recruit. I think there are some good players on this roster. I think Bennett Williams has potential to come back and be a monster piece when he's healthy, but you need another corner. And Christian Gonzalez, who's listed as a freshman, it's that weird, he's a super freshman, he's a two-year starter, but he's listed as a true freshman after this season because... 
the COVID year. The COVID year didn't count. So he played as a true freshman at Colorado last year was good. This this past season, he played again for Colorado as a true freshman in his second year. Weird. Again, super freshman. And played great. He was the third highest rated defensive player for Colorado, according to PFF.com. He is very, very talented. He was an honorable mention all-conference performer at corner. The projection on him is that he will develop into a future first or second team at least all-corner or all-conference corner. Very, very good. A plug-and-play day one starter and a plug-and-play day one plus-plus player at corner. You needed it. You just had to have it with the departures they've had. That's really going to bolster that backfield a ton. And uh, tremendous credit goes to Demetrius Martin, the new corners DBs coach for the Oregon Ducks. He's known as a big-time recruiter. Certainly, he's done a great job at Colorado. He's landed two major, major commitments for the Ducks already. One, he doesn't get full credit for. Um, Oregon's first commitment in the class of 2023 is locked in. It is Cole Martin, who committed shortly after his dad, <laughs> Coach Martin, took the job at Oregon. Cole Martin's a big-time corner. Uh, big-time, big-time corner. One of the top 75, 80 prospects in America. A chance to develop into a top five, six, seven corner in the country by the time his senior year in high school comes to a close elite but again kind of a lay-in for dad to bring in his son uh, christian gonzalez a little bit different entered the transfer portal right after coach martin left for oregon it made it pretty obvious he was going to head that way and sure enough he transfers to Oregon. That's a big get. And I don't think Oregon's done in the transfer portal. They've obviously contacted and aggressively recruited the receiver position. I know Troy Franklin, Dante Thornton, Chris Hudson, Seven McGee, Isaiah Brevard are a nice young nucleus. But I also think uh, at so far, you don't have a surefire true alpha in that receiving core. I do think those guys will develop and be those guys. But as of right now, there's just there's no 70 catch guy on the roster in terms of proven, proven 70 catch guy. Again, I think Thornton could get there. I think Franklin could get there. Hudson could get there. But they aren't proven to be there yet. You need a veteran presence in that receiving room to make sure those guys are developing, to have a peer in their ear who has been there. And uh, Oregon has definitely pursued the wide receiver position. Will they add one? I think it could be coming. Uh, you look at Brendan Rice potentially out of Colorado. That's certainly a name to watch. The son of Jerry Rice. He hates that. He says don't include that always. But I mean, he's the son of Jerry Rice. He's going to have to live with the fact that he's a receiver at a pretty high level, and his last name is Rice. People are going to make the connection. Be like, oh, Jerry's kid. Uh, he's very talented from Colorado. There's some connection there. In general, in general, I think Oregon is doing some work right now, and Dan Lanning will be able to do even more after Georgia competes in the national title game. Uh, results pending there. The game, technically, based on when we're when we're recording this, hasn't happened yet. By the time you listen, it will have happened. So hopefully Dan Lanning is a champion, a national championship uh, coach, defensive coordinator, by the time you listen to this. Um, I think when Lanning hits the ground running at Oregon, he's going to evaluate where they need help. He'll look at the roster. He'll talk to his assistants figure out where they need help and potentially attack the portal kind of an, again with uh, a new level of vigor following the late signing period into spring saying, okay, I've seen who these guys are. I went through a spring practice. We need a an outside linebacker. We need, we need another lineman. He'll do that, evaluate it, look at it. And Oregon probably 
adds another transfer or two this summer. Also, I think Oregon still has another wave of transfers leaving the program. They'll get there in the spring. Lanning will run his system for spring practices. Guys who thought they were going to be starters will be bumped down because they don't fit what Lanning does. Uh, they'll come and say, hey, scheme isn't the right fit. Lanning will say, we're running this. They'll grow uncomfortable with that. Or Lanning will just say flat out, like, you don't fit what I do. It might be best for you to move on. So we will see another layer of guys leaving the program, and we'll see another layer of guys coming into the program into spring, uh, beginning in the at, early spring and certainly continuing through late spring. So that's what things look like. I think right now for the Oregon ducks, we've seen the three waves of decommitments for this recruiting class falling from the top 10 to 64th. Why is that not as big a deal as it otherwise could be? Because we just had a COVID year where freshmen had a whole season and came back as freshmen. We see the good side of that with Christian Gonzalez transferring into Oregon as a sophomore a true sophomore having already played for two seasons. He'll be a sophomore next year. He's played. He started for two years at Colorado. The downside of that in terms of scholarship limit, if you're Oregon, if you're any program in the country is you had double freshmen this year, you brought in a freshman class and your freshman class from two years ago remained freshmen. So you had, if you signed your normal 25 guys a year, you had 50 freshmen on the roster So Oregon's loaded, and most programs are loaded with very, very young talent, and they're saying, we have more young scholarship talent than we know what to do with. So if you take a smaller class, it is not the end of the world, and that's why I think Oregon is pretty well suited to be okay, to absorb the blow of a 64th rated recruiting class in the country because their best two classes in program history are the last two years. And those guys are all still very, very young. So if any time Oregon was positioned nicely to deal with this, it's probably right now. That being said, I'm sure Oregon fans are looking around going, okay, but let's not have another one of these anytime soon. Uh, I do want to get to this staff as a whole, what Oregon brought in, because I think it's very interesting. I think it's very telling about the priorities of the program, the types of coaches they brought in. And I still want to get to Oregon State. What's their situation looking like? How many scholarships do they have left? What do they want to do for this late traditional signing period in February? We'll get to all of that in the second part of this show coming up next. Hey, welcome back. We went over the Oregon Ducks recruiting class and some of their transfer additions in the first part of the show, but I wanted to get in depth a little bit on this coaching staff because Oregon sent a clear message with the coaches they hired, starting with Dan Lanning, obviously Tosh Lapoy is a defensive coordinator, bringing in Kenny Dillingham, who obviously had real ties to Bo Nix and, and helped bring him in as well. And, and, you know, Coach Martin out of Colorado, what we're seeing with this staff and, and what Oregon has clearly indicated with this staff as a, as a program, as a, as a vision going forward is that recruiting matters. Clearly, clearly one of the takeaways they had from Willie Taggart into Mario Cristobal into now Dan Lanning is they believe they are capable. They believe that they are well positioned to become an elite recruiting power on the West Coast with the understanding that that's not a lay-in. You know, we've seen in the past, you know, Chip Kelly was a great football coach. Mark Helfrich was a good offensive mind as a as a later coordinator, not a great head coach. And, and Scott Frost laid it out for everybody perfectly. 
it's difficult to recruit to, to Eugene. We've kind of found that it's not, but you have to have the right personalities in place. And clearly, Oregon feels with the right staff, they can hit the ground running and be an elite recruiter. And, and they did it in a very interesting way that I think hits and highlights the region nicely. There are four star talents at quarterback, tight end, running back, and wide receiver every year on the West Coast. They're all over the place. Washington State recruits four-star quarterbacks. Oregon State gets your occasional four-star running back and four-star wide receiver. It is not hard to get blue-chip offensive talent in the West region. It's much harder to get it along the O-line and D-line and much harder to get elite blue-chip players defensively. It's just harder. They're, they're more rare. So rather than lean into not only what USC is going to try to make their bread and butter because of Lincoln Riley and his high-powered offenses and and what he recruits, Oregon went the opposite and said, okay, maybe USC is going to get the best offensive talent in the West region. But still, Lincoln Riley does not have a great reputation for having good defenses. So we can recruit against that. Let's put together an elite recruiting staff so that we feel we will always get top five quarterbacks, running backs, receivers in the region. And and that's what they might do. But let's bolster the areas where we're weak. And this is something I think Cristobal did really a nice job of highlighting for Oregon while he was while he was in Eugene. Oregon has good O linemen, but not some reputation of recruiting elite O linemen. Oregon's reputation is quarterback, running back, to some extent, uh, receiver only in the sense that, you know, you go back and you look at like Keenan Howry, Sammy Parker, players like that. Their offense produces playmakers. DeAnthony Thomas, a hybrid receiver running back. Byron Marshall, a hybrid running back receiver. Josh Huff had a good, not great senior season. He had a great Civil War game. Uh, you look at Oregon's history and, and everybody thinks of those positions immediately. And even DBs because of the West Coast and the fact that the West Coast produces skill position guys. But what Mario and his staff did is he brought in a layer of offensive line expertise. He brought in a layer of Southern region expertise that allowed Oregon to tap into and recruit at a higher level areas they don't traditionally recruit well at. And that led to really good offensive line recruiting, better offensive line recruiting than Oregon has ever previously seen. So I think if you hire an offensive mind, you're almost doubling down on who you are if you're Oregon. If you hire a great offensive mind, one, you're giving up ground to Lincoln Riley. Lincoln Riley is the best offensive mind, maybe in all of football right now, definitely in all of college football. There's a reason the NFL is using his stuff. There's a reason he's being discussed as a hot commodity for an NFL head coaching job, or at least has the past two years. If you hire an offensive coordinator, Lincoln Riley's an A+. If you hire an offensive coordinator type as your head coach, you're almost certainly giving up ground to USC. So they get an A+, maybe you get an A-. We just saw that Oregon got a, a hot defensive coordinator, but that is not a guy who's an A-plus offensive coach, maybe not even an A-plus defensive coach. But... Again, you're giving up ground to Lincoln Riley if you just follow in USC's footsteps and hire, okay, we'll hire the next best offensive mind. Instead, Oregon countered. We know the West region produces good offensive talent. We know as Oregon, this is what Oregon is saying, we automatically just our flash 
are, you know, based on the region we're in, based on our tradition, based on Marcus Mariota's Heisman Trophy, we're going to get pretty good four-star talent at running back, receiver, quarterback. Let's bring in a coach like Mario did with offensive line who patches up an area that the region doesn't traditionally produce. Let's bring in Dan Lanning, who has an elite reputation on defense. Not only that, but in some ways, you now have separated yourself from USC. USC is A-plus offense. They're going to get great skill guys. They're going to get five-star skill guys. They already have. Malachi Nelson, five-star quarterback. They've gotten a five-star wide receiver and a five-star athlete and a five-star running back. They're getting those guys under Lincoln Riley. But Oregon's going to go the other way. There's enough good four-star talent at quarterback, running back, receiver that we're going to get really good players at those positions. Oregon recruits those positions well anyway. We're going to bring in Coach Kenny Dillingham, who's really connected in California, particularly with the seven-on-seven coaches in the area. We're going to get good offensive talent. But where Lincoln Riley brings up questions about defense, Oregon's going to make the opposite hire and solve questions about defense. They're going to be the school that people go, okay, Oregon's the school that invests in defense. Not only that, but you bring in a Tosh Lapoy who could potentially bring in some big bodies along the offensive defensive lines. And suddenly Oregon has a different roadmap than Lincoln Riley at USC. There's something different. They're a different offering. They're a different brand. And the coaches they brought in bolster areas that Oregon doesn't traditionally recruit real well. I think it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense not only going head-to-head against Lincoln Riley. I think you could make an argument. Again, if you hire an offensive-minded coach, you're giving up ground to Lincoln Riley almost no matter who you bring in. So if you have some four-star elite you know, elite, let's say five-star wide receiver. And he looks at Lincoln Riley's offense and he looks at Oregon's offense. He looks at Lincoln Riley's pedigree. He looks at whoever Oregon would have hired his pedigree. Almost certainly Oregon would have been losing that battle. Now, Oregon can get in those fights for those five-star guys. They won't win most of them. USC is going to win a lot of those. But when five-star outside linebacker, five-star safety, five-star defensive end takes a look at USC versus Oregon, Oregon has a head coach who's a defensive-minded guy. Check for them. Oregon has a coach that's produced one of the most dominant offense or defenses in college football in the last 20 years. Check for them. Oregon has a number of coaches on staff who are elite recruiters on the defensive side of the ball who have produced results. Lincoln Riley's defenses have always been kind of a question mark. Check for them. Oregon might have a high-powered, blue-chip-laden defense. And because they're in the West region and because they're Oregon and their uniforms and their flash and their tradition and their history and the region they're in kind of always be able to recruit pretty good offense. Oregon should always, based on their region, based on their tradition, should always probably have around a BB plus offense. Defense has always been a question. So if you're Oregon and you have a BB plus offense, you're going against Lincoln Riley, who's going to have an A plus offense. How do you beat that? Do you try to go toe-to-toe with him for offense? Or do you say, let's bring in a defensive guy and make a run at an A-plus defense? So it's our A-plus offense or defense against your A-plus offense. And then, oh yeah, by the way, we're still in the West. We're still Oregon. We're going to have a B-plus offense. And Lincoln Riley, based on your history at Oklahoma, you're going to have a C defense. Oregon has the better average grade. 
That's the vision that Oregon is taking into this. That's the vision Oregon's looking at. And again, it's something that to some extent they took from Mario Cristobal. Oregon wasn't a juggernaut recruiting offensive line. But when Cristobal came in and was able to kind of not only patch that up, but take it to a whole different level, take it to almost the Stanford level under Coach Harbaugh, take it to almost the glory days of of Coach David Shaw, where for a while there, if you don't, if maybe you don't remember Stanford was getting elite quarterbacks, elite running backs, and then the best offensive line classes in America, or dang close, a number of years in a row. Oregon made a run like that with Mario Cristobal. So I think if you're the AD, you got the idea. If you're Rob Mullins, you get the idea and you go, okay, let's go. They got Lincoln Riley, A-plus offense. Let's go defense. Let's zig where they zagged. Let's have an A-plus defense. We'll always be Oregon. We'll always have a B-plus offense. And I think they're giving up more ground to us on the defensive side of the ball than we give up to them on the offensive side of the ball. And I think it makes a lot of sense. I think it was really smart. And I think you're going to see this staff of elite recruiters do a phenomenal job. The question is, can they coach? How good a job can they do in developing talent? Mario Cristobal, I think by the end, a lot of Oregon fans are saying, you know, he's a great recruiter, but couldn't really develop talent very well. I think this staff has some real development uh, in them. I think there's some real potential for these guys to develop talent. We'll see. Remains to be seen a little bit. Dan Lanning's never been a head coach. Kenny Dillingham has not consistently ever been a play caller for a good offense. He's had input and scheme for a good offense. When he, Anytime he's ever been the primary play caller, if he has at all, and there's some debate there, whether he did last year or not at Florida State, they weren't very good. So there's still some questions about development, but in terms of recruiting, this is great. Uh, you look at college football matrix, Dave Bartu had a stat, and he has kind of algorithms for how well a coach recruits, not only overall, because let's face it, if you just go by overall, Georgia, uh, every position coach at Georgia, every position coach at Alabama are the best recruiters in the country, but it's also factors in your, your spot, the spot that you're at. So degree of difficulty. Oregon's current staff, their new staff, is the highest rated recruiting staff maybe ever, but definitely, definitely, definitely in the last five years. The last coach to try to do this, I believe, according to Bartu, was Will Muschamp at South Carolina. That ended terribly. But here's the caveat I would give. When you recruit and bring together a group of recruiters who's the best ever, in the SEC, and you're not at Alabama, Georgia, Florida, LSU, there's still not that big of a gap between the talent you're bringing in and the talent that's at those places. In other words, you're South Carolina. You bring in the best staff ever in the history of recruiting in terms of their their resumes, and you're still probably recruiting behind, or at least even with, Alabama, Georgia, LSU, Florida. If you're in the Pac-12 and you recruit elite recruiting classes, and you have a staff that's the best recruiting staff in the history of college football in terms of the metrics, and at least, again, in modern history. The gap between what you bring in and your average opponent is going to be massive. If Oregon brings in a staff that can get top 10 recruiting classes every year, and we saw this under Cristobal at his best years, the gap between the talent Oregon was bringing in and Washington State, Oregon State, Washington, Arizona, Arizona State, Cal, Stanford, Utah, Colorado, 
absolutely massive gap. It's an absolutely massive gap. So again, in the SEC, even if you're at South Carolina bringing in all-time recruiting classes for the Gamecocks, you still are probably falling behind Georgia and Alabama in terms of recruiting rankings. If you do it in the Pac-12, you're probably distancing yourself pretty massively from everybody except USC. So the end result and the potential for success there is much greater. I know people point to that example and say, you know, Muschamp tried to do this elite all-star recruiting staff at South Carolina and it flamed out. Well, in part, it flamed out because he was in the SEC and the very, very best you can possibly do at South Carolina is still not as good as Alabama, Georgia, LSU, Florida, teams that you play every year. If you do it in the Pac-12, basically, you're going to lap the field outside of USC. And again, we saw that. You know, you look at Oregon's class uh, a couple years ago, and they had five of the top six offensive linemen in the conference. And they had, it was the most stark at tackle. Oregon ended up with like the number six and number nine tackles in the country. Uh, it was Bram Walden. And I'll oh, see now I'm, this is the problem I get into. I try to give the list and then I forget, but it was a year where they signed two of the top 10 offensive tackles in the country. The entire rest of the PAC 12's best two tackles were like 36th and 42nd. Oregon got two of the top 10, the all-star recruiting class for the entire rest of the PAC 12 was 36th and 42nd. That's a massive, massive gap. That would never happen in the SEC. Would never happen in the SEC. Even if you got the number one and number two players in the nation at South Carolina, Alabama would still get like four and six, four and eight. Georgia would get five and 10. It's just a different idea putting together elite recruiting all-star type talent among your coaching staff in the Pac-12 than it is in the SEC. It's got a, it's got a much better chance of working. Can they develop? We'll see. Oregon State, got to transition to Oregon State. I said I would. I'm going to. Here we go. Uh, Oregon State uh, is over the scholarship limit and by by a good number, at least four or five scholarships. So people are wondering, hey, how come there haven't been any articles really on Oregon State? Well, one, I was on vacation for two weeks. And then two, as far as I can tell, they have they're hosting a total of like two or three official visits this entire month, the entire month of January. And so far, all of them are guys who already signed. They're just going on a visit to check things out. Might as well. Free trip. Paid for. Oregon State's got extra official visits, uh, you know, that they can use because they're done for the most part. I don't even necessarily expect them to add any key transfers here in the next couple of weeks. What Oregon State's going to have to do is, and, and a lot of programs are in this spot now that there's a double uh, freshman class because of COVID and the NCAA allowing uh, freshmen from last year to come back again as freshmen. So you had, again, double freshman class. A lot of programs are going to have to tell players to move on or players are going to see the writing on the wall that they're not going to play and they'll move on. Oregon State's going to have a flurry of departures between now and the end of spring practice. They just are. And it might be 12 guys. It might be seven guys, but it's going to be a good number of players. We already saw Sam Vidlak move on to Boise State. So we're going to see that happen for Oregon State. And I think as that progresses, expect Oregon State to become a late player late spring into summer, a late player, 
in the transfer portal, particularly if 11 guys move on, medically retire, declare for the NFL draft, uh, transfer again to bigger schools or smaller schools, whatever the case may be, expect Oregon State to enter the transfer portal late to add an impact talent or two at positions of need. And that may not, again, happen until after they get a look at who they are after spring. Get a look at who you are through spring practice. Guys see the writing on the wall. They're third on the depth chart. They move on. Oregon State looks at their roster. They see the writing on the wall. Oh boy, we need an interior offensive lineman. Oh boy, we need an outside linebacker. Oh boy, we need another corner. That's when we're going to see movement for Oregon State. Until then, it's going to be pretty limited for Oregon State recruiting news. Because again, once you're over, it becomes an issue of trying to sort out how to get back under. In terms of the class of 2023, it all really starts with getting their four-star quarterback in the fold. That will be interesting. I do think they're going to add a blue-chip quarterback in the next month. I think it will happen in the month of February. I think it will be a major, major, major deal for the program. And I do think Oregon State's going to finish 2023 with its best class in at least a decade. I think 2023 is going to be a phenomenal recruiting class for the Oregon State Beavers. It's not a lot on the Beavers, but their hands are kind of tied right now because of scholarship limits, like a lot of other programs. Unless you're in Oregon, who only signed seven guys and have seen a mass exodus in the transfer portal, you're probably up against it in terms of scholarships. That's where most programs are right now in college football who didn't have a coaching change. They're up against it in terms of scholarships. There was a double freshman class and they just signed a recruiting class during the early signing period. So Oregon State, in an unfamiliar spot for them, but a familiar spot uh, across the landscape of college football. Thank you for listening to the show really appreciate you please subscribe uh, and rate us wherever you get your podcasts thanks for listening